Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Well, welcome, everyone. Happy birthday, Hope Brooklyn. Happy birthday. Yes. Let the rebellious stage begin. I'm excited. I'm excited for the twos. That's going to be great. Um, if you're with us for the first time, if you came on the invitation of a friend, thanks so much for being here. We're really honored that you're here. Uh, at Hope Brooklyn, as Trey said, sort of our, our mantra is wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. That's what we started from. That's what we're going to be about. Uh, that's what we're tasked to be. Um, so we have people here from, as, as it says, from all across the spiritual journey. Some here accept the claims of Jesus, are following him in relationship with him. Others are not. Others aren't so sure. Wherever you fall in that, you're welcome here. Thank you so much. And so what we thought we would do for this jamboree, because um, we're kind of a, we're a unique family at Hope Brooklyn. I don't know if you know that, but um, can I get an amen for that one? Unique family? Yeah. We, uh, we're, we're kind of the people that we like, to, we like to think with our brains and then party with our feet. That's kind of how we do things. Um, so what we wanted to do for these next three weeks, today and the next two weeks, is kind of build, if you will, a case for Jesus. We don't do this often. A lot of times we, we can sort of accept the premises about him, um, but we want to sort of step back. We want to step back for all of us in this room, whether you believe in him or not, we want to step back and sort of consider the data surrounding this historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, consider all the data and perhaps make the case that what if the most likely conclusion, the most likely explanation to all this data is that he is exactly who he says he is, that he's God in the flesh that he's unique in the world's story. That's what we're gonna do today. Next Sunday, we're gonna build a case for the resurrection. I know it sounds very strange, but what if when we consider all the data surrounding uh, the claims from the disciples that Jesus was raised from the dead, what if the most likely conclusion is that he was? Now I don't you know, um, presume to say I know all of what that means, but what if the most likely conclusion is that he was raised from the dead? And then on the third Sunday, on, on April 28th, we're going to be like, all right, if we've made the case convincing, what would it look like um, to make ourselves available to God to speak? So that's what we're going to do. So today we're going to look at building a case for Jesus himself. Now, four things I want to, uh, four qualifiers before we jump into the topic today. Number one, I do not feel superior to anyone in this room. <laughs> And I think that's important. I do not feel superior. I don't think that it's one of those things that I have the light and anyone who doesn't believe has, is in darkness and like I just need to impart light. That's not the way I understand God's story. I think rather you and I were all the same. We are looking at the light. I believe that the light is Jesus. We are considering it and then at different points in the journey we are taking steps uh, to receive it more, to see it more. We're all in the same boat. We're all gathering and looking at the same data. We're all trying to make sense of the world, make sense of ourselves, make sense of death. So I don't feel like I'm superior to you. And it's important because when having conversations like this, where I'm making a case for Jesus, if we frame it as a battle to be won or lost, we've already left God behind. That's not the way he thinks. 
God is love. And God is entering into this space to be with us, to love us, to connect with us. So that's the first thing. I don't feel like I'm superior. I feel like I'm just, I'm looking at the data same as anyone else. Second thing I wanna say, human knowledge is deeper than pure rationality. Human knowledge is deeper than pure rationality. I think to be fully human and fully alive is not just to know things intellectually, but also to know experientially, to know emotionally. And all three of these work together. If you've been with us for a bit, you know that I've been kind of geeking out on neuroscience recently. And um, yeah, those are the, the murmurs in the room, like, yeah, a little too much. But um, I mean, we're, we're discovering, it's really fascinating, we're discovering about neuroplasticity which basically says your brain might believe certain things about the world, but if your body acts in a different way, you can rewire your brain. What that means is the brain and the body are working together. There's actually been discovery of membranes in our stomach. You know how you say like, I'm just trusting my gut on this when I have a gut instinct? There have been membranes that have been discovered in our gut lining that connect with our brain. So it literally is true that we have gut instincts. So all that to say, I think there's different forms of knowing things than pure intellect. All right, think of it like this. I think this is a really good way of putting it. Say that you were hiring someone for your company, right? Um, you were hiring someone. What would you do? You'd look at their resume. You'd go over uh, their resume, you'd see how they'd fit in your company, you'd call their references, you'd gather all the data, correct? You'd gather as much data as possible. And intellectually, you may know that they would be a great fit for your company. But you don't fully know until when? Until you hire them. You have to take a step. So all that to say, I think that we can reason to probability, but you have to commit to deeper proof. You have to take a step for deeper proof. I cannot prove to you Jesus. I can only present data and say that the case for Jesus seems most convincing to me. All right, that's number two. Number three, I've, I've used this example before, but I'm gonna use it again because I love it. Um, I've been reading a book called Proust was a Neuroscientist. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, but basically, uh, one of the stories and one of the anecdotes, which is really fascinating, uh, it tells about um, an experiment done on wine experts. These are people not like you and me who drink our two-buck chuck or our Boda box or something. I mean, like, they know their wines, okay? Wine experts. And what they did is they took a just middle-of-the-road Bordeaux, middle-of-the-road wine, and they decanted it into two different decanters. And on one, they, they gave it to the wine experts and said that this is table wine, just very normal table wine. On the other, they said it's a Grand Cru, a really, really expensive, amazing wine. And they asked these wine experts to rate it and, and to describe it. And essentially, in most every case, the Grand Cru was ranked a whole lot higher than the table wine. It was even described with, with words that was like, this is delicious and all the words that people use to describe wine, what they know what they're talking about, right? Um, but it was the same wine. And here's the point, here's the point, what he writes. He says, the organizing system, AKA the expert, you, the organizing system and the thing waiting to be organized are hopelessly interdependent. Before you can taste the wine, you have to judge the wine. There's no such thing as objectivity. Before you can receive new data, 
receive information, taste wine, whatever, you've already passed some sort of judgment on it. You've already interpreted it to a degree. And that's okay. But what it means in conversations like these is that it is important that we not um, adopt a defensive posture. It's important that we remain open to, to what if. And I realize how terrifying it is to, to be open to your paradigm, your worldview being changed, being altered. But I want you to know I'm open to mine being changed. I am. If you have more data, please bring it to me. All right, I'm sitting up here, like I said, from the very beginning, I don't feel superior. I am one guy who really loves Jesus. And I think, as I consider the data in this world and in myself, that the story of Jesus makes the most sense of the world, of the information. That his kingdom and his message means great things for all of us and for this world. But I'm open if you have new data. I, like you, am just trying to make sense of what this is all about, all right? That's three. Will you be open along with me? And then number four, as we're going along, if questions pop up, we have this anonymous number that you can text them in. And we'll, we'll make a video or we'll figure out a way to get a response. So um, on that spiritual response card Trey talked about, you can jot down questions or notes, but also if you just wanna text it in immediately, go ahead and do that and we'll get a response to you at some point this week. And it's totally anonymous. All right, will you join me in prayer before we jump in? God, we are, we are creatures. We were born into this world without a say in it. We woke up and we realized we had consciousness and that we could communicate with people and we could think to ourselves and that we can hurt people and things and we can also love people and things, that there's a lot going on. We also know we're gonna die and we're just trying to make sense of what, what this is all about, why we're here. Is there a creator out there who loves us, who's for us, who wants to live with us, to be in relationship with us? God, you know, because I'm praying to you that I, I I do believe that, and I've seen that, I've seen you move. But I pray for each person in this room, wherever they may be, wherever we all are, that we would hear your voice today, that you would speak to us and invite us to, to step closer into relationship with you. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so building a case for Jesus. I think it's important that before we look at the story itself, the, the accounts of Jesus of Nazareth itself, um, first we need to look at the documents. We need to look at the accounts written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not necessarily the story they tell, but the documents themselves. Because we need to ask, are they historically uh, verifiable? Are they historically, can we trust them as, as, as a historical document? For many of us in here, they are scripture to us. We believe that they're holy books, um, but we should subject them to the same level of historical scholarship as any other ancient document. And so what we wanna do is do that first and ask the question of, are these trustworthy documents? Are they reporting what actually happened in this first century? Um, I think that when we look at that question, one, we know that 
We have other historical references to a, a figure named Jesus of Nazareth. We have um, records in um, historians named Josephus and Tacitus and Pliny the Younger who reference a historical person named Jesus. But the accounts that have changed the world are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so the first question we want to ask is why these? Why did the church somewhere in the first and second century decide that these were the four accounts that were most trustworthy? Um, anyone ever read the Da Vinci Code? Remember when that came out? A couple of us, maybe it was before our time. Um, but this might not be necessary for any of us in this room then. But uh, there are, because if you start looking into it of like, all right, are these the four accounts that describe Jesus? Yes, but there are others. There's the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Peter. Basically in the Da Vinci Code, uh, he makes, he, he tells this story about how the church uh, hushed up those gospel accounts and elevated the others, which is a really good story. The only problem is that it's pure fiction. <laughs> like if you look at the history, you realize that's not at all what happened. Um, but when you ask these questions of, all right, why did the church decide that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were, were the clear accounts that tell us about who Jesus of Nazareth is and not others? And it's quite simple. Those other gospel accounts, Judas, Thomas, and Peter, those are called Gnostic gospels, Gnostic. Gnostic means secret knowledge. And the earliest that we can, that scholars can trace them back to, to being written is 200 AD, which is a good 170 years after the events in question of Jesus. When we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, most scholars say that the latest one written of these four is John, which was probably written in between 80 and 90 AD. Mark is the earliest, probably around 60 to 70 AD. What that means is all four of these accounts that we reference, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written by those who, or, or by apprentices of those who walked with Jesus. They were written in the time periods of Jesus's first apostles. So they were still alive. They could still fact check and be like, hey, that's true, or hey, that's not true. They were still alive. The Gnostic Gospels were not. They were written 170 years after the fact. And when you read them, you realize that they were written in a form of speech that is very Greek, that is not Jewish at all. Um, so that's the first thing that we realize, like when we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these were the earliest accounts of this person, Jesus of Nazareth. So then we go a little further, like, okay, so these are the ones that tell us about Jesus. Can we trust them? Are they historically truthful? Or are they historical fiction? Are they legends? And here I would offer up are the reasons why we can confidently say that these were historically accurate documents. The first one is called the manuscript evidence. Manuscript evidence. Um, when you look at the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you realize that this is the best attested ancient document that we possess. Second one is the Iliad, Homer's Iliad. And this is really fascinating. We've discovered, as of current data, we've discovered around 5,700 manuscripts uh, of the New Testament, of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 5,700. And when I say manuscripts, it's important that we realize I'm not talking about like the full thing, Mark 1 through chapter 16. I'm talking, though we do have some of those, but I'm talking about like scraps, right? Um, maybe Mark chapter two through four. We have uh, pieces of paper. So we've discovered over 5,700 distinct copies of the Gospels. The second is the Iliad with only 1,700 manuscripts discovered. 
Moreover, we know when, when scholars look at the data that there are 300 years at best estimates, 300 years separating uh, the composition of these documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the oldest full manuscript that we have. So when I say full manuscript, I mean we have Mark 1 through chapter 16. There's 300 years gap. Second is the Iliad, and that's 1,600 years between when scholars say the Iliad was written and the oldest full manuscript. And the last thing we know when we look at this information is that the oldest fragment that we have, there's only a 50-year gap between discovering that and the events in question, or when, when, when it was written, when the documents were written. The second is the Iliad, and there's 500 years gap. What does that mean? That means we have tons of manuscripts that when we put together, when we look at them historically, we would say, hey, this is a pretty um, consistent story over all of these 5,700 copies. It's all telling the same thing, the same tale. Now, there have been some claims when you look at all these manuscripts that there are, uh, by one scholar's estimate, between 200 and 400,000 textual variants. I know it's a seminary word. Basically, he means errors. There are 200 to 400,000 errors between um, these various manuscripts, these various copies. But here's what's interesting about a textual variant. I'm gonna give you an example of a textual variant. Oh, there it is, okay. Example of a variant. Jesus went to the store. Jesus went to a store. That's a textual variant. Jesus went up on the mountainside. Jesus went on the mountainside. Now you realize when you, when you look at that, it doesn't change fundamentally um, the, the importance, the significance of the statement. It's just a variant between the two copies of a scribe who made a, a, trans, uh, a transmission error as he wrote down the sentence. Now here's why that's really fascinating. And I got this from a scholar and I, and I really like it. It's a little bit of a thought experiment, go with me. Suppose a book contains 50,000 words, right? And I asked two people to make copies of this book by hand. Now suppose further that they each make one mistake every 1,000 words, okay? That's a 99.9% .9 accuracy. When they have finished, each of their manuscript of their copies of the original would have 50 mistakes for a total of 100. But suppose I asked 2,000 people to make copies of my book. And suppose they also make a mistake every thousand words. 99.9% .9 accuracy. When they finished, the total number of mistakes in their manuscripts would be 100,000. Basically what they're saying, the reason why there's so many textual variants in the manuscripts is because we have so many manuscripts. We've discovered so many. And paper was expensive, so you didn't get a second chance. So they're writing down, and they're trying to be as consistent and honest and truthful as possible. And maybe they forgot, you know, uh, they wrote the wrong direct object there. They wrote the instead of a. Or maybe they forgot a letter on Jesus' name. They put J-E-S-U. That's a variant. Here's what's important about that, that claim that there are 200 to 400,000 variants. Here's what's important. None of the variants fundamentally alter the theology or the reports about this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. None fundamentally alter the claims of his resurrection, his healings, 
or the high majority of his teachings. We haven't found a manuscript that says, uh, actually Jesus was not raised from the dead and the disciples made it up. We haven't found that. The, the solid chunk of the story of what's being reported and even some of like the, 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 the miracles and the teachings, it's all there. What that means, if we're considering, if we're using historical scholarship, what that means is that the best evidence, the best evidence is that these documents were written so close to the events described that they didn't have time to become legendary. They didn't have time to evolve. When you read the Gnostic Gospels, Thomas, Judas, Peter, those are legendary. They were written so close to the events described, they didn't have time to become legendary. And the lack of substantial variance over time supports the belief that people are transmitting historical truth. That the scribes who are making copies, they are trying to be 100% accurate because they view this as the events that actually happened to this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, and they want to make the story is right, make sure it's correct. So that's the first thing when we're looking at these, these documents, the manuscript evidence. The second thing that I'd say to build this case is archeology span and names, archeology span and names. We have found many ancient artifacts that are included in the four gospel accounts. So in John chapter five, he describes Jesus healing someone by the pool of Bethesda. We've discovered the pool of Bethesda. Um, we, we have the, the synagogue. We've discovered the synagogue from Capernaum in Luke chapter four. We've also discovered inscriptions to Roman leaders, to Pilate and Gallio and Erastus, and all three of those names are listed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Acts. So there, we've discovered actual places dating back to this first century period that are in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's something else that you might not find interesting, I find deeply fascinating. Um, we have also found tons of ossuaries, which are like Jewish bone boxes, where, where they put uh, the, the bones of those who died. And scholars who like love this type of stuff, they've built a list of the most popular Jewish names between 300 BC and 200 AD. And then they made a list of the most popular names in the gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And what they found is that the names, the most popular names in, in Judaism between 300 BC and 200 AD align with the most popular names, most used names in the gospel accounts. And not only do they align, but also the, the percentages of how often they're used are roughly the same. And the best explanation for this is that the writers preserved the actual names of historical individuals and historical places described in the events. Here's why that's interesting. And I'm, I'm gonna, I'm sort of giving you a little bit of a spoiler. There's no such thing as historical fiction in the, in the first century. Like this whole idea, the genre of literature where I'm gonna write a fictional tale, but I'm gonna set it in 21st century Manhattan. And I'm gonna talk about 21st century Manhattan landmarks and 21st century Manhattan names, right? That's historical fiction. They didn't have that as a genre of literature back then. So if John starts talking about Judas by the pool of Bethesda, 
everyone's gonna be like, well, what happened to Judas by the pool of Bethesda? It wouldn't be the case that he's making this up. That wouldn't, they would have, there would be more distance in between that and the legend would grow. All right, so that's the, the first two things, the manuscript evidence and then the archeology span and the names match the archeology span and the names of the first century. The next thing I would say, when you actually start looking at the, the accounts, there are tons of unnecessary details, tons. So we read about in John chapter 21 that they caught 153 fish, which is weird. <laughs> Why would they say that? We read about in Mark four that Jesus was in a boat, was in a boat and other boats were with him. We read about in Mark 15 that um, when Jesus was arrested, a man was grabbed and they got his cloak and he ran away naked. And here's why this is uh, uh, really interesting. Like I just said, there was no genre for historical fiction. So people didn't make up unnecessary details to make it more realistic. There was no genre for that. Ancient legends didn't have unnecessary details. So are we asking, are we, we believing that these, these men, these very untrained men, anticipated the genre that won't be discovered for another 1600 years. Secondly, when you look at legends, legends always paint their heroes or mostly paint their heroes in a good light. The anti-hero wasn't uh, devised yet. And when you read these accounts of Matt and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you realize the disciples are total buffoons, <laughs> which gives me a lot of hope. They are total buffoons, they're petty, they're selfish. They're really dumb in a lot of places. They don't get it. They don't get what, what Jesus is doing. And one, this is, this is, if you've never read it, this is really true. There's one disciple named Peter. And in one place, Jesus, he, he's a follower of Jesus. And Jesus, like he starts, you know, taking liberties. Jesus calls him Satan. He says, get away from me, Satan, because you're, you're a stumbling block to me. And then later on, Peter will actually curse Jesus through his own cowardice at the hands of a servant girl. That's like, Peter is the worst. <laughs> you read that and you're like, Peter, you're the worst. He's presented as a racist in Acts 10 and Galatians 2. And yet this is the guy that is called the rock that the church is gonna be built upon. If the disciples were making this story up and trying to start a following, they wouldn't have picked that guy. They wouldn't have picked him. The only reason they tell these stories like this is because it probably actually happened. That's how it went down. When you look at Jesus himself, he was rejected by his hometown. He does some weird stuff, which we'll talk about. And then the centerpiece of the story is that Jesus is publicly executed in a really humiliating fashion. The first responders to when Jesus was raised from the dead were women. Women in that period had no voice. In fact, if there was, a, if there was litigation in place, a woman's testimony could not be admitted before the court of law. If you're inventing a story, why would you have someone who has no voice be the first responders? There's too many unnecessary details and too many details that paint uh, the, the characters in a really troublesome light. So first, if we're, 
before we examine what that, the, the story is, when we look at the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we ask, how do we know they're historically truthful? How do we know that they're reporting the actual events that happened? Why is it not historical fiction? Why is it not a legend? Well, the manuscripts, sort of recapping what we just said, the manuscripts are written too close to the events in question. If it was a legend, it would need a lot of years. It would need time to evolve. The manuscripts are written too close to the events in question. The variants in the manuscripts show no substantial alteration over time, which means those who were transcribing it, they were trying to keep it as accurate as possible. They were not taking liberties with it because they believed it to be a report of who this Jesus actually was. The manuscripts utilize names and locations of actual people and actual places, which would have been very confusing for the first readers if it wasn't actually true because there was no historical fiction. And then lastly, I, I sort of to sum all this up, I love this line, you may have heard it, from a guy named C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis lived in uh, 20th century Britain. He was a professor of medieval literature um, at Cambridge, I think, either Cambridge or Oxford. He was an atheist forever, and then he became a follower of Jesus later on in life. And this is what he says about it. He says, I've been reading poems romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, this is reporting, though it may no doubt contain errors, like we said, when you're transcribing by hand, you might make a mistake here and there. This is reportage, though it may no doubt contain errors, pretty close up to the facts, nearly as close as Boswell. If you don't know who Boswell is, don't worry about it. Or else, some unknown writer in the second century, without known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. Suddenly anticipated it, and then it disappeared for 1,600 more years. If it is untrue, saying if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are actually untrue, they're, they're fabrications, it must be narrative of that kind, meaning historical fiction. And the reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. That was, a, that was an insult. That's a 20, 20th century British insult right there. when considering all the data around the accounts themselves, the most likely explanation is that these writers are trying to tell the truth of what actually happened. They're trying to tell what they saw, what they heard, what it was like following this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, despite how insane the story may be or the implications of it, they're trying to tell the truth. And the last sort of explanation that I have, evidence, Blaise Pascal writes, I believe witnesses who have their throats cut. Most of the first disciples of Jesus were executed for this belief. And just so you're aware, to follow Jesus, since most of the first disciples were Jewish, was to immediately ostracize them from their communities, from their social, communal, religious um, context. It was immediately to put them at odds. 
It did not result in political power because they, you know, the church didn't rise to the state religion of Rome until 325 AD, 300 years later, which is its own story. So it did not result in political power. It did not result in communal power. I believe witnesses who have their throats cut, if they're willing to hold to this story, which isn't necessarily gonna benefit them in their life and will probably end in their death, I wanna listen. (laughs) I wanna listen to what they have to say. So I think when we consider the evidence around the books themselves, we can say, or the most likely conclusion is that these books were not invented hundreds of years later. They were not adapted in malicious ways They were not inventing hoaxes or inventing legends or concealing the real information. They were telling, they were writing down what they saw, what happened, and they wanted to tell you the truth. Now, they did believe this. They're not modern biographies. Modern biographies, the biographer has a distance from their subject, right? They write about the subject, but they don't necessarily believe or they're not gonna stake their lives on their subject. They are writing and saying, I want you to believe in this too. I've seen something. I want you to believe. But they are reporting the most likely conclusions. They are reporting what they saw and believed to have happened. So then the question becomes, okay, if we can trust these accounts of Jesus as historically factual, as telling the truth as much as they were able to what they saw and heard and what the story was, if they're historically um, trustworthy, then who is this Jesus? Who is it that they're willing to have their throats cut for? What is he about? What is he advocating for? Who is this historical figure that they say, I have to write his story down? Couple things. Many, many who have to make some account for Jesus of Nazareth, they'll say, and I hear it often, that he was a sublime teacher. He was a profound teacher. And I just wanna say, yes, that's true. (laughs) He was an absolutely profound teacher. When you read these accounts, it does seem like he was a messenger of the divine. His message is one of love, one of generosity, one of value for people, one of mercy and forgiveness for enemies, for those who have wronged you, of going the extra mile. So if someone hurts you, going further with them to bless them, It's really sublime teaching. Uh, It's often noted that in Jesus's teaching, he elevates women and children. He elevates the diseased and the social outcasts. So those who are socially marginalized, he brings them to the center of the community and he creates this new sense of family. Those who have the political power of of a region, of an area, he sort of reduces their power. He sort of redefines what it means to be human. He was a sublime teacher, absolutely. When you read the accounts of Jesus, you also recognize that his actions, what he did was likewise beautiful, unbelievably beautiful. He touches lepers with compassion. Lepers, leprosy, you might know it as a skin disease. They had no cure. Um, So if you had leprosy, you were cast out of the community. He would touch them, which means by touching them, Jesus is now unclean. But he didn't just touch them, he'd also heal them, which they was like, what is this? He touched lepers. He welcomed children. He refused to condemn people caught in wrongdoing. He didn't accept it. He challenged them. He said, hey, there's a better way to live. But he didn't condemn people caught in wrongdoing. He refused to condemn the self-righteous as well. He also challenged them. He's like, you're in probably a much more dangerous place than those doing wrong. 
but I'm not going to condemn you either. He was patient. He was gentle. He was kind. While he's dying, while he's suffocating on the cross, according to one account, he prays out. He says, while he's suffocating on the cross, waiting to die, he prays that that God would forgive those who are killing him because they don't know what they're doing. To his last breath, he doesn't condemn, but he blesses. So he was a sublime teacher. He did beautiful things. But if we're going to read the whole story, we also need to recognize he was a very scandalous teacher. (laughs) His teaching was really scandalous. He told people that if they wanted to follow him, they needed to leave behind their homes, their mothers, fathers, that the most important relationship for them going forward was with him, was with God through him. He, he said, if you want to come follow me, get prepared to come die with me. That's what's going to happen. He says, like in, in the Jewish tradition, they had, you know, the Ten Commandments. We know them, right? Um, says, don't murder. He goes, well, I'm not even telling you don't murder. I'm saying if you look with someone with anger in your heart, you've already committed murder. He says, if you've looked with someone with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So his teaching was really scandalous. Like he sort of ups the moral imperative, sort of. He equates himself to the year of Jubilee, which if you don't know what that is, basically it was this Jewish tradition where every 50th year, all the debts were canceled. Uh, everyone who was, um, went into indentured servitude was freed. Uh, every, every, the, the slate was wiped clean. It started over. He says, I am that. I am the year of Jubilee. He says, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. What does that mean? <laughs> what? Yeah, he said, forgive your enemies. And then he said, but you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. What do we do with this? He was a great teacher. He was also a very scandalous teacher. He did some beautiful things. He also did some very weird things. (laughs) He accepts worship. So there are a couple stories where there's a woman and she's so moved by him that she pours a very expensive bottle of perfume on his feet and wipes it with her hair as an act of worship. But humans don't worship other humans in their time. They worship God. They worship the divine. And he doesn't stop her. He accepts it. There's also a a story where he's riding through, he's walking through, and there are people saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the coming king. And they say, teacher, don't you don't want to tell them to be quiet? They're equating you with the Messiah. They're equating you with like a God figure. And he says, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks will cry out. So imagine, guys, imagine, just for, for just imagine that I'm here and I'm, I'm giving teaching and it's really sublime and it's beautiful and you love it. But then someone says, oh, I worship you and I, I don't shush you. I'm like, actually, you're doing right. <laughs> I would never do that. (laughs) But imagine, right? That's weird. That's weird. He forgives people their wrongdoing when it's not against him, but against God or against others. Imagine someone punched you in the face and I said, it's okay, I forgive them. You're like, well, I don't forgive them. Great, I'm glad you do. He goes, no, it's all right. So he has sublime teaching. He has beautiful things he does. His teaching was also very scandalous. And he did some weird stuff too. And probably most important of all, he says often, he equates himself with God. He says in John's gospel, I am the way, the life, and the truth. 
No one comes to the Father but through me. And here's why that's interesting. When you look at other uh, religious traditions, um, so far as we know, Muhammad, he never said that he was on par with God. He says he's a prophet for God. He's a prophet of the divine. Buddha, same thing. He says, I'm just a human being. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says he is human, but he also says, I'm a little bit more than that as well. I'm a little bit more. And probably the most important thing of all when considering the accounts of who this guy was, Jesus of Nazareth, you realize when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that the reports are structured such that Jesus is making clear that everything he's saying and everything he's doing, it's not going to make a lick of sense until he goes and dies and is raised from the dead. <laughs> he goes, hey, I know you don't get it. This is why I'm calling you Satan sometimes, Peter. It's okay, don't worry. <laughs> you will get it. But it's not gonna happen until I die and I'm raised to life again. And we're like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and I'm gonna talk about this next week, but just for our purposes today, for a Jewish listener of which these first disciples were, there was no category for the Messiah, for the Savior, to be executed and then raised to life. There was no category. So they didn't understand what he was saying. And he goes, I know you don't understand. You have to wait for this to happen and then you will. The accounts are structured such that Jesus is making clear you cannot understand him until he is killed and raised to life, which when you read to the end, that's exactly what the claims are. It's exactly what happened. He is executed under the reign of Pontius Pilate and according to his disciples and others who are closest to him, they say that they saw him raised to life again three days later. And over the course of 40 days, they said they had resurrection sightings of him. We'll talk about that next week. So let's put it all together. Here's a man who has sublime teaching. Here's a man who has really difficult, uncomfortable teaching. Here's a man who says to see me is actually to see God. I know it's weird but to see me is to see God. Here's a man who hangs out and loves those whose society does not enjoy and who marginalizes. Here's a man who hangs out and loves with those who are the winners of society. He hangs out with everyone. He seems to love everyone. Here's a man who performs miracles, crazy miracles, heals people of blindness and deafness and muteness and leprosy, but then tells them to stay quiet about it. Don't share because you'll give my cover, you'll blow my cover. And you have to stay quiet because you don't really understand who I am until I die and am raised to life again. It's all, all this is contained in a life that says you won't understand me until I am abandoned by my best friends, abandoned by everyone and left to die unjustly, suffocating to death on a cross in excruciating, humiliating fashion. And while on that cross, still asking that those who put him up there be forgiven for what they did because they don't understand. So let's put it all together. If we can trust the accounts, if the most likely explanation is that these are historically factual, these are reporting what happened and the scribes want to keep the story as faithful to the original as possible. 
And then we read the story and we see all this about this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. What do we conclude? Again, C.S. Lewis, as he's describing what happened with him when he made sense of, of who this Jesus is, he said, as I considered all the evidence, there were really only three options. This guy, one option, he's a maniacal cult leader. <laughs> he is just narcissistic and maniacal to a degree and to a form that we have never seen before and haven't seen since. But when you consider the evidence, cult leaders don't seem to demonstrate such unstrategic generosity. They have very cold and calculated generosity sometimes, but not unstrategic the way Jesus does. They don't seem to demonstrate such unstrategic uh, kindness and patience. They don't live a life of poverty and homelessness usually, of which Jesus did. They don't, they certainly if they die, they don't die first for their followers. Usually they say, you guys go die first for me and then maybe I'll follow. Jesus died first. He goes, you don't understand any of this until I die. There are no claims of sexual perversion around Jesus. We don't have that in the accounts. He seems to be so moral in a sense that, that I haven't seen. So when he says, if you look at someone with anger, you've already committed murder. We don't ever seem to see that in him or you look at someone with lust, you've already committed adultery. We don't seem to see that suggested in him. And if this is a cult, if that's what we are, we're a cult. Well, I just wanna say that when the church is getting it right, of which we don't often, but when we are getting it right, we become the deepest lovers and the deepest servants of the world. We become the deepest servants of the socially marginalized. We become selfless beyond belief when we're getting it right. So if this is a cult, that's, is it bad to say I kind of want to be a part of it? <laughs> I want to be a part of that type of community that's selfless and that's loving and that's kind and that serves people and doesn't seek your own interest and doesn't fear. I want to be a part of that. So it could, he could be a maniacal cult leader, but I don't think that's the best explanation. He could be a liar, but he really seems to believe his own lie. And if that's true, that he believes his own lie, he drank his own juice, go see the maniacal cult leader one again, right? That doesn't seem to make sense. So then the third option, if he's not a lunatic, as Lewis says, and he's not a liar, then the most likely conclusion is that somehow, in some way, he is exactly who he says he is. Now, I might not be sure fully what that means, not yet, but when considering the data, somehow, in some way, he is precisely who he says he is. That the creator loved this world so much and this world drifted away, this world rejected relationship with their creator who is love. And because we rejected a relationship with God, with love, we were filled with a lot of violence and a lot of fear and a lot of anger and bitterness. And we can see that history. But this creator would refuse to let his world rot. And so he came in the form of a human 
He came like us. Because we didn't understand a God who is spirit, but we can understand a God who is human. And he starts teaching us who God is like. And he starts demonstrating what the kingdom is like. Diseases are healed. The lowly are lifted up. The proud are humbled. He starts redefining what family is like. And some of the teaching is awesome and I love it. And some of the teaching, I'm like, whoa, hold up. What does that mean? He accepts worship, which he's a human being, which is very scandalous. He forgives people who didn't wrong him. And the story throughout does not paint people in a good light. It does not paint him in a good light. The whole reason I'm a pastor, because I am placing the hope of my existence on a Jewish man, a poor, homeless Jewish man from the first century, whose story ends by suffocating to death as a Roman criminal. And I look at that image and I say, that's God. What? (laughs) That's ridiculous. And yet, I think when considering the evidence, following the logic, (laughs) that it actually makes the most sense of the data. And as, because I am one who has stepped further into the story and into relationship, that rationality has been confirmed for me and deeper proof of love with God. And he says, for any who receive me, who receive this truth, the truth of the author's love, you too will live with me forever. You too will have abundant life. It's tough for it will entail a way of life that does not seem natural at first, but I will give it to you freely. I will give it to you recklessly abundantly. And it will not be dependent on the mistakes you make or the things you do. You can't earn it. You can't lose it. It's all from me and you can have it. But first I have a cup to drink and I must go to it. As I consider the evidence friends, and I know, I don't know where everyone is in the room, but as I consider the evidence, this seems to be most likely. Now, next week, what we're going to do is we're going to consider the claims around whether Jesus was raised from the dead. Because <laughs> again, all this may be true. This might be really beautiful. Jesus is saying, hey, you don't really understand me until I go to death. But unless he was actually raised from the dead, as he said he must be, then it kind of doesn't matter. So we're going to consider the data surrounding those claims and make the case that perhaps the most probable, the most likely conclusion to all of this is that he was raised from the dead and what that means. I'm gonna invite the band back up. I'm gonna ask everyone here to close their eyes and join me in prayer. God, I pray that um, if anything was said that didn't make sense, that you'll make it clear. I pray that as we turn our eyes toward your son, toward toward Jesus of Nazareth. And we look at him and really look at him. Not just, you know, projections of him or what people say about him, but really consider the accounts that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote down of how he lived, of what he taught, of how he died, and the claims of his resurrection. We consider that. I pray that something would shift in our hearts. 
And I don't care if it's for someone who's never believed in you or someone who does believe in you. Even right now, would something shift in their hearts? That they would know that it's true. It's insane. It changes everything. It's utterly changed the world. But it's true. And that your love for us is incomparable and overwhelming and will blow us away. That you have good things for us. That you want to communicate to us why there is such a thing called death, but that your love is even stronger than death. And there's so many questions that we have, so many questions, but that can come later. Right now, we gaze upon Jesus hanging on the cross who said, when you look at him there, you see the love of God. And we open our hearts and we say, if this is true, then continue to reveal yourself to me. Continue to make yourself known. Maybe there's people here who have never prayed and I would ask that as scared as they may be, to say, all right, I wanna ask tough questions. I wanna ask big questions. If this is true, then Jesus, make yourself known. Do that, Lord. We love you. We bless you. Confirm in our hearts once again how incredible this story is, how incredible you are in the world that we're gonna live in with you, that we get to be a part of establishing right now. It's in your name we pray. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.